The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. You find out who your real friends are when you're involved in a scandal, said the actress, Elizabeth Taylor, who was married eight times and had a string of high-profile affairs. Boris Johnson... Westminster's blonder, seedier version of Hollywood Liz is still finding out who his real friends are this weekend as his premiership buckles and strains under the weight of the Downing Street party scandal. There's industrial-scale parting that's been going on. Were there discos in the basement, fridges for booze, birthday... I can confirm that the Met is now investigating a number of events that took place at Downing Street and White Sat there too long for all the good you have done. In the name of God, go. We don't know yet how this story is going to end. But however the party gate scandal plays out in the days and weeks ahead, it seems certain, at the least, to leave an indelible stain on Boris Johnson's reputation and record. The moment is Teflon armour his remarkable ability to laugh off every discrepancy, was finally breached. And all in the cause of some pretty rubbish-sounding works do's, where spads swap secret Santa gifts and Spotify playlists, and where the most interesting party guest was an overpriced wallpaper consultant brought in to spruce up the flat. But before the Prime Minister beats himself up any further for risking his career for a glass of red wine and a slice of illicit birthday cake, he should remember that he is, in a sense, merely playing out the latest act in a great political tradition. The political scandal is, after all, as old as politics itself, as indelible a part of Westminster life as the green cloth of the Commons benches or the jerk chicken in the terrace cafeteria. From the Marconi scandal of the 1910s to the Tory sleaze of the 90s and beyond, all the way through to our 21st century scandals involving MPs' expenses claims, Cambridge Analytica, and now the breaking of pandemic rules. So this week we'll be asking what goes on in the minds of these politicians who are prepared to risk it all. Nixon could have handled Watergate had he not chosen to try to cover it up. What's it like to uncover a scandal and expose it to the wider world? I got a phone call from a contact saying, oh, somebody I know has just seen somebody they're convinced is Dominic Cummings up in County Durham. What it's like to be at the centre of a scandal as your carefully constructed life and career come crashing down around you. So I hung on for, uh, for three weeks and then I resigned. Uh, and by that time I was nearly dead because of the immediate storm. From Politico, 
I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're looking at the nature of political scandals and what it's like to be at the very centre of it all. The best thing, and the worst thing, about looking back at political scandals is there are just so many to choose from. Researching this episode, I totted up the best part of a hundred British political scandals over the past hundred years. And the truth is, you can just keep on counting back into the distant past. I found a notorious case in 1892 when a Liberal politician called Jabez Balfour was found to have swindled thousands of investors in a dodgy business deal. He fled to South America, where he was nicked a couple of years later by a resourceful Scotland Yard detective with a little more appetite for pursuing political suspects than Cressida Dick has shown so far. Back in 1809, the then Duke of York, what is it about Dukes of York, was forced to quit as head of the British Army after his mistress took bribes to get favoured officers promoted. In 1763, an MP called John Wilkes claimed the Prime Minister had only got his job because he was sleeping with the King's mother. Wilkes in turn was hounded from office for publishing pornographic writings. And on and on it goes. Now, the truth is that up until the middle of the 20th century, political scandals for the most part went somewhat underreported, the establishment largely preferring to look after its own than hang them out to dry. But nevertheless, in the 1910s we had the Marconi scandal when senior politicians including Chancellor and soon-to-be Prime Minister David Lloyd George were accused of insider trading. There was a cash for honours scandal as long ago as the 1920s. Some things never change. And then budget leak scandals in the 1930s and 40s, back when leaking the budget was a scandalous thing rather than a matter of Treasury press release. The 1950s brought the Suez Crisis, an event so serious it transcended mere scandal, although the Prime Minister did lie to the House of Commons and eventually quit, and into the realms of national humiliation. But it's the 1960s when things went into overdrive, with the watershed that was the Profumo affair. Miss Keeler and I were on friendly terms. There was no impropriety whatsoever in my acquaintanceship with Miss Keeler. Of entirely baseless rumours and insinuations that have been started by the press. You'll know the story well enough. War Secretary John Profumo was found to have slept with a teenage showgirl he'd met at a high society party. A woman who also happened to be sleeping with a Soviet officer. Profumo lied to Parliament about the affair and was forced to resign amid national security fears. After Profumo, it was gloves off from the press's point of view. Never again would politicians and establishment figures be given special treatment. And since the 1960s, British politics has been beset by scandal almost every passing year. Celebrated highlights include Liberal leader Jeremy Thorpe facing trial for murder in the 1970s. charged with plotting to kill Mr Scott. Mr Thorpe is also accused of incitement to murder. They all deny the charges. The never-ending run of Tory sex and sleaze scandals of the 1980s and 90s, many of them set against the backdrop of John Major's comically hypocritical Back to Basics campaign. It is time to return to those old core values. Time to get back to basics, to self-discipline and respect for the law, to consideration for others, 
to accepting responsibility for yourself and your... And then a slew of misconduct allegations which forced various Labour cabinet ministers from office in the 2000s, culminating, of course, in the all-encompassing carnage around MPs' expenses in 2009. That is not correct. Is that correct? That is not the correct. senior Labour election coordinator, Fraser Kemp, claimed for two DVD players one month apart. The details are still emerging, but Downing Street insists that the rules were followed. And that's just the UK. All around the world, politicians are being toppled by political scandals every year. But I want to say one thing to the American people. Sex scandals don't get much bigger than those involving President Bill Clinton in the US. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Or President Silvio Berlusconi in Italy. Only three months ago, the Austrian Chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, was forced to resign amid a corruption probe. There are scandals involving money, cash for questions, cash for honours, even cash for an ornate duck house. There are scandals involving sex. We've had Cecil Parkinson, David Meller, Boris Johnson, obviously, and even, unbelievably, Matt Hancock. And keeping to the rules on social distancing. Don't blow it now. We're on the route out. There are scandals for personal gain, like MPs' expenses, and scandals that are purely political, like Damien McBride's now legendary anti-Tory smears. But one thing links them all. Powerful people, mostly, let's face it, powerful men, taking enormous risks with their careers for kicks, for kickbacks, or, at best, for short-term political gain. Why do they do it? Why on earth would you risk it all for a quick smooch in front of a CCTV camera, or a cheap shot at a political opponent, or, yes, for a glass of red wine and an underwhelming cheese board in the Downing Street garden? To try to understand, we're going to start today with the biggest political scandal of them all. A scandal so big that every subsequent scandal has been named after it, or half-named after it, at any rate. The date, of course, is June 1972, and there's been a break-in at the Watergate Hotel in Washington. Nixon is running for president for the second time. Actually, he's uh, coasting to victory, but at the time when he decided to mount an intelligence campaign against the Democrats, which eventually morphed into Watergate, he was running a tighter race than he eventually ran. And so he had reason to believe that his victory might not be automatic, and he put pressure on his aides to gather all kinds of intelligence against his Democrat rivals. This is the author and former Washington Post journalist, Michael Dobbs. His latest book, King Richard, published last year, draws on thousands of hours of newly released recordings of President Richard Nixon to try to understand why he and his most powerful aides chose to act as they did. He offers valuable insight into the psychology of those embroiled in this scandal. He'd run a very close election with Jack Kennedy in 1960, and he thought he was robbed of victory in that election. And he was determined not to be robbed a second time around. So that is part of the background that explains why his people went into the Watergate with the goal of 
putting eavesdropping devices there that would gather intelligence on what was happening inside the Democrat National Committee. Now, you'll know this story well enough if, like me, you were reared on tales of Woodward and Bernstein and all the president's men. But to refresh your memory... The Democratic National Committee is trying to solve a spy mystery. It began before dawn Saturday when five intruders were captured by police inside the offices of the committee in Washington. A team of men working for the campaign to re-elect President Nixon broke into his Democrat rival's campaign HQ in the Watergate Hotel to try to bug the premises. They were caught by security guards, arrested by police, and, at the trial, began to name and blame those higher up the chain. Although nobody at this stage was blaming the president himself. I've compared this to the famous story in English medieval history about Henry II and Thomas Becket. Henry II says at one point, who will rid me of this turbulent priest? And his knights go out and murder the Archbishop of Canterbury, even though that was not the king's original intention. And it's a bit like that with Nixon and Watergate. He certainly made it be known that... um, He wanted to settle scores with the Democrats. He wanted to gather intelligence on them. But there's no evidence that he actually ordered the break-in. But while Nixon himself may not have ordered that specific mission, what became clear was that he'd overseen a much broader Dirty Tricks operation. And crucially, that he'd then denied it all and tried to cover it up. People have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Watergate actually was just the tip of the iceberg, and probably Nixon could have handled Watergate had he not chosen to try to cover it up. He could have blamed Watergate on his overzealous aides and so on. But the problem was that had he allowed a full investigation into Watergate, it would have revealed all these related scandals in which Nixon was involved. For example, Nixon ordered a very close surveillance on the man who they thought had leaked the Pentagon Papers, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, including a break-in into the offices of Ellsberg's psychiatrist. But had all that come out, that would have been extremely embarrassing to Nixon. So he had to cover that up. So the burglary goes ahead at the Watergate and the burglars get arrested on the site and court case ensues. When does the president first realise he's got a big problem on his hands? Is he immediately panicking by this or is is this a sort of slow process over the course of the year? He realises fairly early on that he has to cover it up and there are tapes on which he is recorded as telling his aides to order the CIA to cover it up. And they believe one of the reasons they have to cover it up is there's a presidential election coming up in November. This is July. And they can't afford for the full facts of Watergate to come out before the election. So he gets deeper and deeper embroiled in the scandal, more and more involved in the cover-up. At one point, he thinks that he's got it behind him. I mean, he's re-elected by one of the largest popular vote margins in American history, a triumphant re-election. And then the whole thing unravels very quickly over the course of the next hundred days. The fall from grace was extraordinary. Just listen to this recording of a gleeful Richard Nixon practising his second inauguration speech with close aide Chuck Coulson 
in January 1973. You want to hear a little uh, bit of the acceptance speech? Yes, love to, sir. Abroad and at home, the time has come to turn away from the condescending policies of paternalism. Ah. Of Washington knows best. Ah. Oh, great. <laughs> yeah. A person, listen to this, a person can be expected to act responsibly only if he has responsibility. Within two months, Colson will be forced to resign, with Nixon departing too the following year. Colson would serve seven months in jail for obstruction of justice. And in a hundred days, you see Nixon going from being full of hubris at the peak of his powers to being forced to fire his two closest aides and come very close at that point to resigning himself. It takes another year for the scandal to completely play out. But in effect, his presidency has unraveled in the first three months of 1973. And there, I think you can see some comparisons with Boris Johnson because, you know, Johnson did manage to put a lid on some of these scandals for a long time. And then, you know, suddenly they escalated. What's been noticeable about the Christmas party scandal, if I can call it that here, is the way that we've we've just kept having new revelations. The story has exploded and then it's gone quiet for a few days and then something else has happened. And there's been this drip drip of revelations. And in a sense, that happens with Watergate, too, doesn't it? That absolutely happened with Watergate. It was a kind of escalating revelations. I mean, there was a period when the story went quiet. And then, I mean, the period that I was interested in, which is the first three months of 1973, is when all the aides start turning on each other in a bid to save themselves. I mean, you know, you can draw parallels between Dominic Cummings and, say, John Dean, who was Nixon's lawyer, who eventually turned against him viciously. When the inner circle begins to break apart and you get all these leaks from the inner circle and you get sort of escalating revelations, which, of course, the press picks up, you know, that was the beginning of the end for Nixon and I think could well be the beginning of the end for Johnson. It was John Dean's word against Nixon's over what the president knew about the Watergate break-in and the attempt to cover it up. What did for Nixon in the end, of course, was the revelation that the president routinely taped his own private conversations in the White House, meaning Dean's accusations could be proven in court. You had two rival versions of events. You had Nixon's version and you had John Dean's version, his accuser's version. And as long as there was no evidence to demonstrate who was telling the truth, then Nixon could probably have survived, even though, you know, people suspected that he was lying through his teeth. But it was only the tapes and the revelation that he had actually been taping himself. And then, of course, the prosecutors wanted to go after those tapes. And that led to a long battle in the courts, which went all the way up to the Supreme Court, which ultimately result in the release of some of those most damning tapes that really settled this argument. We in 
What's striking reading the detail in Michael's book is that ultimately it was Nixon's sense of self-importance which brought him down. He wanted to write his own version of his history once he'd retired, and the usual mix of diaries, professional note-takers and voice memo recorders were deemed insufficient. Literally bugging multiple rooms in his own home was Nixon's solution to securing his legacy. And in the end, he certainly did that. I mean, imagine that you had microphones and tape recorders inside 10 Downing Street recording all the crucial conversations between Boris Johnson and his aides. Nixon had made what was a historic mistake. He thought those recordings would never become public, that they would be private. But once there was evidence of crimes being committed, then the prosecutors and the FBI investigators had you know, reason to go after those. No president or no world leader, including a British prime minister, will ever record themselves the way Nixon did. As you're listening to them and sort of wading through the, the hours of these recordings, do you get a real sense of the man? Do you start to sympathise? Do you see things from his point of view? Well, yes, because the recordings are not just recordings of you know, him plotting with his aides, but they give an insight into his personal psychology. And, you know, I compare this to a Greek or Shakespearean tragedy. The title of my book is King Richard. And even if you don't sympathize with his politics and you're outraged by, you know, what was happening in the White House during that period, it's hard not to sympathize with the sort of human tragedy of this man who has climbed all his way up to the top of the greasy pole. And then it all comes crashing down in the space of a few weeks. And it all strikes me, correct me if you disagree with this, that it was all just so unnecessary. You know, he didn't need to do these things. He was the president and he had a pretty good chance of winning re-election and he just got it all so wrong. Well, certainly, you know, with hindsight, he didn't need to do it because he had a very ineffectual Democratic opponent, uh, George McGovern, and, uh, you know, he was heading towards a landslide election victory. But he didn't realise that at the time but he thought he could get away with it. He understood the risks, but he went ahead anyway. I think this is another parallel, actually, between Nixon and Boris Johnson. I mean, Nixon was brought down by his sense of hubris and also the very qualities that had taken him to the White House in the first place, which were, you know, his sort of determination to win. He turned everything into a fight, his hatred of his enemies. And you can see a little bit of the same thing happening in a different way with Boris. The very qualities that brought him to 10 Downing Street, his sort of insouciance, his ability to get away with everything, are now the same, you know, flaws that are bringing him down. Just lastly, this was famously described by a White House aide as a third-rate burglary. It's as crazy a thing to bring down a president as a cheese and wine party would be to bring down a prime minister, isn't it? Well, it was a third-rate burglary, but you know, it revealed something profound about the culture of the White House and you know the way Nixon had been running things, which ultimately proved to be his undoing. You know, he wanted to present it as a third-rate burglary, but it ultimately turned into a constitutional test of the president's authority and whether the president was above the law or not. And that's what Watergate was really about. Could he do whatever he liked 
or was he subjected to the same laws as the rest of us? And uh, that argument was really settled with Nixon's resignation. What I love about the Watergate story is this kind of morality tale aspect to it. Nixon, a giant of a man at the peak of his powers, completely undone by his own character flaws. And I think this is what appeals about so many, if not most, of the political scandals we've enjoyed or endured down the years. Again and again we watch these clever but deeply flawed individuals brought down by their lust or their arrogance or their paranoia or their greed. Character traits we often knew they harboured from the very start. This is what makes these scandals so compelling, why we find it hard to look away when the moment of schadenfreude arrives. Coming up in part two, we'll be hearing from two superstar reporters about what it's like to uncover a scandal, and from a senior politician on what it's like to find yourself right at the centre of one. Stay with us. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise, and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. There have been two great scandals of Boris Johnson's premiership so far, and Pippa Carrera has uncovered them both. I was, like everybody else, stuck at home towards the end of the first lockdown with the kids running amok downstairs and my husband and I trying to work. Sorry, no, the kids homeschooling downstairs and my husband and I trying to work at the same time. And I got a phone call from a contact saying, oh, somebody I know has just seen somebody they're convinced is Dominic Cummings up in County Durham, which is where his parents live. And I was kind of like, well, that's odd because he's not supposed to be there. Pippa is political editor of the Daily Mirror, the Labour-supporting tabloid newspaper which has led the way on both the Dominic Cummings and the Partygate scandals. My source was absolutely adamant, so on the back of that, I dispatched a photographer in the northeast. Journalists and photographers were still allowed to go about their work, despite the lockdown rules, and he rushed to where this sighting had been, and there was nobody there. He got there too late. That obviously piqued my interest, and so... I then embarked on sort of weeks and weeks of trying to stand up this story. 
So I got the help of Jeremy Armstrong, who is our Northeast editor at the Daily Mirror and lives and is based obviously up in the Northeast and knows lots of people locally. And I also spoke to people down here at Westminster uh, who may have known his movements. And all the while we were talking to people in number 10 and sort of meeting a sort of a stonewalling and obfuscation from then. And I was very conscious that we were making a serious charge against probably the second most senior person in government at that time. And therefore, a threshold of evidence of proof had to be very high before we even considered publishing the story. I didn't feel that the threshold had been met. But in the course of these phone calls I was making and conversations I was having, I I became aware of the fact that The Guardian was also looking at alleged sightings of Cummings up in the northeast at that time. And it wasn't that long since I'd worked at The Guardian. So I knew that there was a lot of trust there that might not normally exist between two rival organisations. So I got in touch with an ex-colleague there and said, look, I know this is unorthodox, but look, I'm going to lay my cards on the table. This is what we've got and this is what I know you've got too. And I wonder if we work together, we might be able to get this over the line. We agreed that we should go for a short drive to see if I could drive safely. No, uh, no rules have been broken and uh, no laws have been broken. Uh, I intend to, uh, to draw a line uh, under the matter, as I, as I said, I think yesterday to the, to the parliamentary liaison. Did you realise how big a story it was right from the start? I think I was aware that everybody was making some degree of sacrifice during that period. So I was conscious that it was something that everybody would feel was in some way relevant to their lives. I don't think I imagine, I don't think it was possible to imagine that it would quite sort of stir up the public anger that it did. As a journalist, you were faced with denials, you were faced with obfuscation. I remember your newspaper and The Guardian were both derided by Downing Street when the story came out. Did any of that put you off? Did at some point you think actually maybe, you know, they're denying this so strongly, maybe it isn't true? No, it didn't. It definitely didn't put us off pursuing the story. And I think you reach a point as a journalist that you you balance up the evidence in front of you and you say, well, on the one hand, we've got these people, multiple sources claiming they saw Cummings at this particular place at this particular time. And then on the other side, you've got sort of, you know, what people are saying on the record in terms of denials, but also the sort of the background that you get from your own contacts that you don't necessarily publish, but sort of gives you confidence that you're on the right track. And from the very beginning, despite the fact I was sort of sitting there in my in my desk in my in my room, thinking, "God, did he really go? Did he really? Would he really? I mean, this is the guy that sat with the prime minister and instructed all of us to stay at home. Surely not." There was a bit of me that thought, "Well, you know what? This man is a is a rule breaker and a sort of a, a contrarian, and it actually is exactly the sort of thing that he might do." And just lastly, for for Dominic Cummings himself, his reputation was shredded by this incident and many people would say rightly so but do you feel sympathy do you feel you know god what have we done to this guy by exposing what he did my god of course you know i'm human and actually i I was kind of really surprised by their response because i still think that had he come out on that friday night and said look you know what i'm really sorry i did make a mistake i shouldn't have done it then the public is pretty sensible. And yes, I'm not saying that there wouldn't have been public anger at the fact that he broke the rules that, he'd, that, that he and the Prime Minister had set. But I think it would have gone a long way to kind of repairing that damage early on, rather than letting it drag on and sort of presenting this sort of series of excuses. And if we just fast forward it a year or two later, 
when you first broke the story about a first suggestion that there'd been some sort of party in Downing Street, we saw quite a similar government response, didn't we? Obfuscation, denial, slowly, slowly being dragged towards the truth. Uh, essentially, the same story played out again. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's actually a different set of people around Boris Johnson. And yet, in terms of them dealing with this story and others, it's been the same response. And that's because I think that the tone is set by the top. Boris Johnson's response to stories that he doesn't like has always been to kind of double down, tough it out and hope that it goes away. And sometimes that works. I mean, let's face it, he's faced plenty of controversies over his career, but it didn't work for the Cummings Barnard Castle stuff. And I was quite surprised, actually, that there was that similar failure to recognise that actually this was another scenario where they would be better off being upfront about it from the start. Another political journalist at the centre of uncovering a political scandal is Christopher Hope, the Daily Telegraph's associate editor for politics. He worked as part of a small team on the MP's expenses scandal of 2009. Could you explain to the constituents and the viewers how a home cinema system for £2,600, how a claim for an iPod, how a claim um, to for a DVD well, screen... I'm happy to respond. I did not overclaim. As I have to my constituents for wrongly claiming for the cost of films alongside my broadband and cable Does the public recognise that they are pretty much all as bad as each other? The more bizarre claims which we've seen in the new Daily Telegraph, this being for a duck island. His newspaper had obtained a leaked disc containing several years' worth of expenses claims made by every MP in Parliament following a long-running battle with Freedom of Information campaigners. Even within Telegraph HQ, the disc's very existence was top secret. And I was told to come in early on a bank holiday Monday for some extra training for me, so I turned up... Your heart must have sunk. I thought, oh, my <laughs> Lord, it's um, bank holiday Monday, I can't face this. And we went in, and then um, we walked in there with the editor that was there, Chris Evans, Rob Winnett, then the deputy political editor, Matt Bailey, and news editor, and, they, and we, I walked in and some other colleagues were there. And they said, right, thank you for coming. We're not doing training. That's boring. We have the disc of every single MP, their expenses going back four or five years. Each MP, it's, it, it is millions of documents, and you're going to find out if there's just a story in them. What are you thinking at that moment? With Lent, Oh, my Lord. This is, we knew it was huge, and we had to agree a, a cover for it. So over the following few days, we worked in this windowless room in Telegraph headquarters, um, which has now been erased altogether. It never happened, but it did exist. And the, the newsroom carried on with its work, and we, we were, quotes, training. And after a while, no one believed it, but no one knew what we were doing. We were given um, laptops, unnetworked laptops, because it was obviously highly sensitive information. We had you know, the mobile phone numbers for the Prime Minister, his, his visa details, I mean, everything was in there. So we had to make sure we dealt that really responsibly, which we did. For Chris Hope and his colleagues, uncovering the expenses scandal required completely different techniques to those used by Pippa Carrera as she chased down sources and tips to nail the lockdown breaches. From the start, the Telegraph reporters had all the information at their fingertips. All they had to do was hunt out the rule-breaking and the patterns of immoral behaviour amid the mountains of tedious paperwork. 
Gordon Rayner got my colleague now got a whiteboard up and wrote things like, you know, what, what are they doing here? So we saw how at the end of a year, MPs would suddenly spend heavily on their allowance to make sure it's spent properly. So it's called, we call that the kind of the splashing the cash group. Then there's another group who fed themselves throughout the year claiming money for food and drink, which only you were only meant to claim when the house was sitting. So we saw lots of claims in August when they were at home. We saw an interesting one where uh, MPs would move an allowance from one property to the next property, then drain that and do that, that property up and then move it back. And I was a former business journalist, and I, I knew something called flipping, which in the city means you flip debt from one company to the next one. When you were going through those documents in that bunker, were you sort of jaw-hitting the floor at some of the things you were finding, or was it, or was it a real needle in the haystack and you'd just spend hours looking through very boring things? It was very boring, and you couldn't just search, example, Duck House. Each leaked thing was a PDF photograph. So not so, searchable. So you're not, not crucially not searchable. So you sat there just this... Hitting down, down, down. Oh, hello. Duck house. The duck house one was uh, my colleague Nick Allen was, was in the other part of the office. He said, this guy's claimed for a, for a duck house. He was called Peter Vigors, the late Peter Vigors now, I think. And he put through a, a rather ornate, built in the, in the Dutch style, duck house <laughs> for the ducks. Uh, duck houses are quite interesting. They, they have a, quite a narrow door so the duck can feel a bit of friction as it waddles in. If it's too large, it allows predators in. So it needs to be certain... I know a lot about duck houses, Jack, being a political journalist. Uh, and then, um, luckily, it wasn't put through by the fees office. It was challenged and not paid. And then because we had these guys' home address, and Google Earth was a new thing, just launched that year, we looked it up and we, and we zoomed in. And there on a lake was the duck house. So we bought it anyway. And I said, you can see it from space, <laughs> which, which, became, which became one of the moments. The big thing with any story is, are you being played here? Are these documents real? And we had no idea if they were real until about 2 p.m. on the day before publication, when Robert, Robert Winnett, who, who led the story, he went to a lot of the cabinet who we had done, and he, was, he, he sent out this note, quite a formal note about midday to them. Here's what we found out. Please reply by 4 p.m. Yours sincerely, Robert. And about half an hour after his email went out, Jack Straw came back and said, yes, I'm afraid there was a mistake with my, with my council tax. And he confirmed that, that that had been corrected and he paid the money back. And at that point, we thought, oh, my word. That this, was when you know it was true. That was the moment when the eyelids fell. We thought, right, <laughs> sleeves rolled up. Was it an exciting time to be yeah. working? I mean, what did it feel it's like quite, going quite, into quite, work? Quite amazing. Um, every day we'd have a new revelation. Each night we'd repair to the pub next door, the Grosvenor House Hotel pub, and just sit there watching it and put the news on, and we'd be the first, first story on the news would be our revelations that night, and we'd just be drinking and going, this is unbelievable. And it went on for four weeks. But what does it feel like to be on the other end of a bombshell email or telephone call from an investigative journalist? What does it feel like to be the high-flying politician whose world is about to come crashing down? For my final interview, I spoke to Andrew Mitchell, the former International Development Secretary and Chief Whip, who in 2012 was forced to quit the Cabinet after an angry run-in with the police officers at the Downing Street gates. The scandal led the headlines for weeks and quickly became known as Plebgate, following allegations, hotly disputed at the time by Mitchell, that in the heat of the moment, he'd called one of the officers an effing pleb. 
In an extraordinary twist, Channel 4 journalists would later discover that a piece of witness testimony had been falsified by another officer. But by then, Mitchell had already felt compelled to resign, and he would lose a subsequent libel battle over what was or wasn't said. As his excellent new memoir, Beyond a Fringe, Tales from a Reformed Establishment Lackey, explains, it was a crushing moment for a political career he'd been building carefully for most of his life. Well, I was very lucky because I had a father in politics and therefore I sort of grew up with politics round the kitchen table. And I hope I learnt that politics is about service to your constituents. So I had that as a foundation at university. I was, you know, I was quite interested in politics. I was president of the union. I was chairman of the Conservative Association at Cambridge. And I came down to London, but I knew I needed to get a, a proper job if I was going to go near politics. I mean, I used to sort of shout at the television when the Labour Party, which was in government, uh, was doing things which I thought were wrong. And people used to say to me, well, instead of shouting at the television, why don't you do something about it? Why don't you get involved? Did you ever have any doubt that you would be a Conservative politician? Uh, no, I, I, I didn't really, uh, and I'm ashamed to say that I even stood at the age of 13 as the Conservative candidate in the school mock election, but I was, <laughs> I was roundly abused and beaten by the representative of the Somerset Cider Drinkers, and I think I came third, so it wasn't a very good, wasn't a very good start. What stands out from the early chapters of his memoir is how Mitchell devoted years, decades really, of his life to the Conservative Party, becoming a constituency chairman, then failed parliamentary candidate, before finally becoming an MP in 1987. He cut his teeth as a government whip and as a junior minister in John Major's government in the 1990s, lost his seat and was then re-elected in 2001, before finally getting the call to join the shadow cabinet under Michael Howard in 2005. Personally wanted to be the shadow international development secretary, didn't want to do it. And so he asked me whether I wanted to do it. And I, I said I'd, I'd be very pleased to do so. They didn't know much about it. Did you find personally developing a real passion for this thing that you hadn't previously known that much about? Yes, I did. I mean, I, the things that haunted me very much, one of the things that's not in, in the book is I went into Goma, which is just on the border of the Democratic Republic of the Congo in Central Africa with Rwanda. And I was taken by an NGO to a camp, which is one of the most miserable places I've ever been to. And we went round the camp, which was caught between the, the heavy guns of the two combatants in the DRC at the time. Uh, there were soldiers with guns in the camp, which is absolutely forbidden under international rules. And there were mothers with several children living under, under sheets of canvas. Food was very scarce. And, and I looked at this and I, I thought there must be something we can do in the world today with the wealth of the rich world to stop people having to live in these conditions. By the time the Tories finally came to power in 2010, Mitchell had developed a genuine sense of mission. But as cabinet positions were carved up between Tories and Liberal Democrats under the terms of the coalition agreement, Mitchell feared he'd miss out on his dream job. Well, it was terrifying because I was sitting with the television on, just waiting, and we knew there were five Liberal Democrats who were going to join the cabinet, and we sort of ticked them off. And I was sure that the Liberal Democrats would take would want Diffid. I mean, if you think about it, it's the obvious thing for them to want. And 
four Liberal Democrats were out, and then we waited. And then finally the fifth one came, which was uh, Chris Hoon. And uh, we realised that with a bit of luck we were OK. And then the phone rang, and the Prime Minister called me across at 3.30 to number 10, and I walked up Downing Street, and he said, I want you to be my development secretary. And I said that I thought I was going to burst into tears, and I'd do my very best. All those years of hard work had paid off. At last, Andrew Mitchell was a fully-fledged cabinet minister and could start to put his ideas into action. Well, I think we did a lot of little things. We had a list of about 120 things we wanted to do, and I think we did well over 100. I think that the reform of CDC, which was the government's taxpayer-owned investment arm and provides seed money for an enormous number of projects and so forth around the world. We reformed it very radically. The Girls Education Challenge Fund, which I set up, which was designed to get a million girls into school, into school in places where the state, you know, couldn't do it. And anyone could bid into the fund, and if they could provide value for money for the British taxpayer, then they could get a contract and get girls into school. And I I think if you want to know how you change the world, actually it's by educating girls. It's quite a shift to go from that kind of international aid work to being the chief whip um, in Westminster and and, and sort of looking after party management. Were you pleased, surprised, when David Cameron asked you to switch roles? No, I mean, I said that I didn't really want to be chief whip because being chief whip brought out the serpentine, darker side of my character and uh, international development brought out the sunny, optimistic side and so I didn't really want to do it. He had asked me to be his defence secretary one year into, into my time at Diffid when Liam Fox resigned. And I had said no because I was in the middle of the reforms in Diffid and I thought it would be you know, cut off at the knees if I... If I probably a big mistake, actually, in personal terms, but not least because I wouldn't have been riding a bicycle through the gates of Downing Street if I had been defence secretary. But I said no then. And I also thought, I think you should try and do what the Prime Minister wants, if you possibly can. And I thought that if I refused again to do what he wanted, he'd conclude that Mitchell was a bloody nuisance. I'd better sack him at the next reshuffle. So, so I agreed to, to do it. And you obviously weren't Chief Whip for very long at all. Did you have time to enjoy the role? In the end, if you read or hear anything about the Chief Whip in the press, then, then, then you're, not, you're not doing the job properly, because the Chief Whip should be seen but not heard, really. And, of course, because of the incident at the, at the gate of Downing Street, I was then the story. So I hung on for, uh, for three weeks, and then I resigned. Uh, and by that time, I was nearly dead because of the media storm and, uh, and the effect on my family and the effect on me. Did you call them pleb? I'm very clear about what I said and what I didn't say, and I want to make it absolutely clear that I did not use the words that have been attributed to me. Did the Chief Whip use those words? What the Chief Whip did and said was wrong, and that is why it is important that he apologised and apologised... Well, within the last hour, it's been announced that that the Conservative Chief Whip, Andrew Mitchell, has resigned. Singapore News revealed that a serving police officer, who claimed to be a member of the public, emailed his local MP saying that he witnessed Mr Mitchell calling police officers plebs. ...was not telling the truth. I will seek to say this on oath in a court of law... Obviously, I'm bitterly disappointed by the uh, result of the judgment uh, today. This has been a miserable two years. But we now need to bring this matter to a close 
and to move on with our lives. We don't need to talk about the incident itself because it's been played over so many times and argued over in court, but just tell us afterwards, did you have any sense that this was going to be such a big deal? I never really blamed the press for running with a good story, and indeed the press, although they did me in, they also exposed what had happened to me. So I say in my book that, you know, in the end, our liberties in this country are most protected by having a raucous, cacophonous, disrespectful, cynical press... And it's not, they're not protected by politicians and ministers and judges and police and so on. It's the press, in the end, which hold the powerful and the rich to account. And, you know, although I was tossed on the horns of the most terrible storm, personally, I've never doubted that the importance of the role of the, of the press. It's amazing to hear, to hear you say that purely because I know that the pressure during those first days and weeks must have been so intense with the people camped out outside your house and all the rest of it. What, what is that like to go through that? Well, it's very, it's very, very hard to describe, but I mean, it also, in my case, it morphed into quite serious depression. But as I have a, both a wife and an elder daughter who are doctors, you know, I got treated. That helped and I was sorted out. But, you know, it's quite difficult to get out of bed. You, you fear the letters coming in with enormous fees. You fear the telephone going off and you can hear the noise. I remember we had about 18 outside our London home and they would arrive at sort of five in the morning and leave at one in the morning, the poor people outside. I never resented them, but they were, it was frightening. And you talk about them uh, trying to speak to your neighbours, about following members of your family around. I mean, that must have been extremely distressing to realise yes. that was happening. Yes, it's true. How did you feel Downing Street and the government machine dealt with the situation? Well, we should, of course, have had a, an inquiry. It was from Sue Gray, actually. And Sue was, behind the scenes, was very supportive of, of, of me, as a matter of fact. But we didn't have an inquiry, and Downing Street thought it would all go away quite quickly. But the trouble was that for the next three weeks, there was no news at all, no news and I, I put my head into a noose because the media were furious with the government for setting up the Leveson inquiry and the police were furious with the government for cutting their pay and rations. And so I, it was the perfect storm. No news and these two very powerful groups gunning for A. Mitchell. So, so the judgment in Dynasty would all go away within a matter of hours, if not days, was wrong. And I also, I lay low, and so the whole thing, I mean, I made almost every mistake you could possibly make in the book. And Downing Street afterward just wanted it to, to go away. But at the end of the day, you're, a, you're an employee who's under enormous pressure. You talk about how you stop eating and, and suffering from depression. Are, are, are you getting support from your employer in this terrible situation? No, well, I did, I did feel that David Cameron was my commanding officer and that he should have done more. And I felt it particularly when I got the most wonderful letter from my former commanding officer during my brief career in the army which was enormously uplifting and and gave me a lot of strength but th that's the nature of politics and you know David Cameron has me had many pressures on him as prime minister and he didn't want to have a massive row with the police he was already worried about being outflanked from the right so there is an element of that but he had also given me the job of my dreams as development secretary so I never sort of took against him for that. How did your other colleagues react during those difficult first weeks, fellow MPs and, and ministers and so on? Well, one or two of the whips who had been let go from the whip's office 
uh, obviously took, took their chance of revenge. And there are, for certain colleagues, there's nothing that brings so much joy as the prospect of a colleague being publicly hanged. So, so there was a bit of that. But there were also colleagues who were on my side, who didn't believe it, who knew me very well, and who came out and spoke up. And they're all listed in the book. And just finally on this, what, what was the tipping point where you finally decided you had to resign? There had been a Prime Minister's questions where there was a... a, a and on the Thursday and Friday, there was a moment of peace. Well, there were still people outside the front door, but there was a moment of peace. And I just decided I couldn't go on like this anymore. I mean, I thought, I thought, I thought it was going to, literally going to kill me. And uh, I also thought that I couldn't do the job. And I, I wrote in my resignation letter to the Prime Minister, I can't do the job you want me to do anymore because I'm the subject of all this stuff. And that's the antithesis of being Chief Whip. And so he was at a he was at an all night negotiation in Europe, and then went to Chequers on the Friday night when he got back. And I was drove down to Chequers to resign and say goodbye and head off towards the back benches. And and so you become a backbench MP again. Did you consider stepping down from Parliament altogether? I did, and uh, indeed, indeed, at one point we all considered emigrating because it was all so awful. But my constituents were wonderful. My association was utterly staunch. It's the nature of the royal town of Sutton Coldfield. And so I was very struck by that, and I didn't want to cause them a by-election. And then, you know, life picks up. And I did consider leaving. But there's, I try to explain in, in, in my book that there are three stages to a parliamentary career. There is the first stage, when perhaps you're over-keen to ingratiate yourself with the, with the powers that be. I think I certainly was and where you learn the ropes and where you aspire to be a minister. Then there's your time, if you're lucky, to be on the front bench, hopefully in government. You may become a minister and junior minister, maybe even a senior minister. And then when you leave office, normally not in the way or at a time that you wish, rather than become bitter, which is a terrible mistake because it corrodes your soul, you know, you can then start to do more things for your constituents and you can start to champion the causes that you care about that matter to your constituents. And also, you can work across party. And I developed a close friendship with Joe Cox, now uh, sadly no longer with us. And she was, she was a wonderful campaigner, and we worked cross party to try and do something about the, the, the humanitarian disaster and catastrophe that was Syria at that time. There's an awful lot you can do in that third stage rather than flounce off. And I, I, you know, I think it's a pity that, that all too often people leave after office because you know, the legislature is incredibly important. We are supposed to hold the government to, to account. And actually, you know, if you look, at, for example, at Theresa May since leaving Downing Street, I think that all across the House of Commons people would say that she'd enhanced her reputation since leaving government and is now a very highly respected figure. And it's striking that a lot of the, the best work you've done since uh, leaving government has been cross-party. You've worked with not just Joe Cox, but also with Margaret Hodge on, on tax issues, and even with Jeremy Corbyn and John McDonnell um, on human rights issues. What was that like? Well, that was extraordinary. We went to the States together. Uh, there was an all-party group run in Parliament. It was this run before Jeremy Corbyn was Labour leader. Actually, yes, this, this, well, and, and the all-party group on Guantanamo Bay 
uh, set about trying to get the last British detainee out of Guantanamo Bay, a guy called Shaka Ama. And John McDonnell ran the all-party group very well. Uh, I think Jeremy Corbyn and I were the vice chairman and David Davis was the secretary. So it was a sort of eclectic group. And uh, John wasn't very well, so we went across the Atlantic with Andy Slaughter instead of with John. And the four of us went to Washington and met the administration. We went up onto the hill, we met senators and uh, congressmen and women to argue the case that the United States should release this guy. He'd been in, inside for 14 years and, uh, you know, we were right to get him out. David Cameron had tried three times with President Obama but had not been able to do it. And this sort of rather rugged team of individualists, we did, I think. And, and do you know what? Over dinner, we all went out for a dinner after we had all these meetings before heading back to London and Jeremy Corbyn doesn't drink but he he's he's an expert on cheese so he ordered the cheese and we sat there and David Davis and I said to him are you going to run for leader of the Labour Party and he said no it's John's turn but when they had the caucus of the left John was ill and Diane Abbott wouldn't do it so Jeremy said well I suppose I've got to do it then and the rest is is history and the incidents at the gates and, and really what happened afterwards, the way you were treated by the media, by the police, by Downing Street, did that change your view of what you label in the book the establishment? Well, it did. I mean, I think that in, in searing events like this, David Blunkett told me that it takes three years to recover from these things. And he was right, because I remember waking up one morning and realising I hadn't thought about it for about a week, and it was exactly three years had gone by but in these situations you either sort of sit and chunter about the injustice you've faced in the corner you become a bit like a sort of irritating maiden aunt at a Christmas party going banging on or else you draw a line and say look there's an awful lot of life left and I've got lots of things I want to do for my constituents and with my family and so forth you draw a line and you put it behind you and you do, and now when people talk about it, <laughs> including you, I sort of have to dredge it up from my from my mind a bit, and and of course it's it's always there, it's always there, but uh, you do have to put it behind you. But but did the experience change you? Do you did you come out away from it more chastened or humble or I don't know? Is, do you, do you feel like you're a different person because of what you went through? Well, I, I, that's for others to decide. But one of my great friends in the House of Commons said to me that they thought I was a nicer person. But I don't know whether that's true or not. It's painfully obvious from speaking to Andrew Mitchell just how easily we forget the human beings at the centre of every political storm and, whatever their transgressions, how dismally they're often treated by each part of the Westminster system. But we've heard lessons here too for Boris Johnson, I think, as he looks back at the wreckage of Party Gate. It's striking how in each of the scandals we've looked at today, the initial response has been to deny and to obfuscate, to actively cover up the truth, or just to lie low and hope it all goes away. Needless to say, none of them ended well for those involved, especially when further revelations were allowed to drip out day by day. But Andrew Mitchell also offers a more optimistic note on which to end this podcast. A politician who crawled back from his lowest ebb to lead important humanitarian campaigns and work with backbench MPs from right across the political spectrum and whose friends say he's now a nicer person as a result. So who knows? Once the furore about lockdown-busting parties is behind him, perhaps there's hope even for Boris Johnson after all.
Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. These episodes are not really time sensitive, so why not have a look through our back catalogue too for others that you might enjoy. My producer this week was Emma Barnaby of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then. Late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth more than this fear right now? And that rising after failure is part of the glory of being a human being. Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts.